This is the Do Better Podcast with Dr. Megan Miller and Joe Smith, launching you into the future of behavior analysis. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Joe? Uh, I am cold right now. Have you looked at the weather outside lately? Well, I'm in Florida, so, but it is ah. kind of, it's a little chilly. It's like 50 degrees here. I've had my seat warmers on, you know. You have seat warmers on at 50 <laughs> degrees? Are yeah. you joking me? Nope, nope, wow. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't have any access to seat warmers in my car, but that's okay. I just get up early in the morning, turn on the car, let the heat run, so, but it's cold here in Virginia, but, it, I mean, like, I know, I, like, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and it was a lot colder, and it's, uh, uh so I'm kind of, so I'm kind of acclimated to the weather here now, since I've been here for, like, nine years. Yeah. So. I was but, in Ohio, you'd think I would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yeah, you had the same type of climate as uh us and um Pennsylvanians have. Yeah. So but uh you know what? We have a special guest here with us today. Our first guest on our podcast, her name is Dr. Pollard Chan, uh from the University of Cleveland State University. Um, so how are you doing, Paula? I'm doing well. How are you, Joe? I'm fantastic. Um, welcome. Thank you for uh, wanting to come on and uh, talk with us. Can you tell us? <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about your uh, uh, background in education? Absolutely. So I am trained for my master's in applied behavior analysis at University of South Florida, um, and I worked with um, Kim Crossland while I was there. And Kim does work with. Um, functional analysis for um, students, I'm sorry, not students, uh, for kids in foster care. Um, so she looks at functional analysis of running behavior when kids run from placement, um, sort of what is the reason for that. So I had the privilege of training with someone who did some really um, non-traditional behavior analytic work. Um, and then from there, I worked with primarily um, adolescents and young adults with um, moderate developmental disabilities who were um, arrested. So they would, they would engage in criminal activity um, and they'd be arrested and found incompetent to stand trial. And then they became adjudicated adults, meaning that they became wards of the state. And so my role was to um, develop behavior intervention plans for folks who were court ordered for services. So as you can imagine, that was not the most um, population to work with. A lot of times the idea of consent was a little questionable because um, they're court ordered. So can you really consent when you are court ordered for treatment? It becomes a, a complicated question. Um, and then from there, 
I, I spent about five years doing that and realized this, this system is broken and it's not working and the best place to um, address this issue is earlier. And so I wanted to go back to school to pursue work in, in special education to um, be able to have a role in training teachers. So I actually was at Ohio State with Megan um, and we did our doctoral work together. And I have been at Cleveland State for the past four and a half years, it's almost five years now, um, working in teacher preparation. That's awesome. So, um, so can you talk about a little bit of um, why you decided to get into ABA? Yeah, so um, when I started in ABA, I wanted to do um, early intervention for kids with autism. Um, and I had um, had some experience working with that population and was really with um, a really phenomenal analyst in Florida who had an early intervention program and um, did really enjoy that work, but ultimately uh, struggled with the idea of parent implementation, right? Um, I think when, when you're dealing with early intervention, you've got a lot of a lot of things going on in the family, right? So a lot of times parents are dealing with the grief process, just, you know, my kid's not gonna play football, my kid's not gonna do all of these things that I had for them in, in my dreams, right? Um, and, uh, and so I ended up shifting into adult services and young adults and, and really enjoyed that. That's awesome, that's awesome. So can you talk a little bit about like what you do at Cleveland State with the teacher preparation program? Absolutely, so um, we, run a um, clinical model of teacher preparation, which means they take college courses, but those college courses, the lecture content is cut in half. So in our three hour course, typically we meet for three, three credit hours, or I'm sorry, three instructional hours, but instead they're meeting with me for about an hour and then they spend the next two hours working on as we just learned about in the classrooms, that, um, in an elementary school classroom. So um, let's say we're working on token economy um, and they learn about the content of token economy and the, the textbook stuff, then they go in and they implement the token economy. So I teach in our clinical model, um, I teach methods of instruction for moderate intensive disabilities, classroom management and um, intro to special education for our early childhood life teacher students. I also teach um, transition to adulthood and research methods. That's, uh Sounds uh, a lot of work and it, very rewarding work, uh, getting our teachers prepared and ready. Um, I know uh, token economies is something that our, uh, our program that my, my uh, work that we're implementing and we, we went through trainings to understand what really is a token economy and um, how to implement it correctly. And we actually modeled that during the training just to like have a clear understanding. Um, so um, yeah, that's, that sounds like it's a lot of fun and <laughs> a lot of hard work. Absolutely. More fun than hard, but, but definitely hard some days. <laughs> <laughs> so Paula, when I was, um, when we were at Ohio State together, you were doing your dissertation on um, working with people to do functional assessment, right? Like having people actively participate in the process? Yes. Um, so typically at adolescents and typically developing adolescents um, with emotional and behavioral disabilities. You want to tell us a little bit more about that? It was really interesting. Are you, and I'm sure you're carrying that on as you've been working at Cleveland State or? 
So I am, um, but the work has not, it's not as active a line because it's been difficult to find the resources to, to carry it out. Um, but, the, but it's definitely an area that I plan on picking up again in the future. Um, so basically what I'm interested in is figuring out when we have students who have, um, who are, who have higher levels of cognitive abilities and are more typically developing, how can we involve them as active participants in their functional behavior assessment um, process? So whether that be through student interviews, um, teaching them to collect their own antecedent behavior consequence data, things of that nature, so that they can become more aware of their antecedents and consequences and maybe the function of their behavior. Um, from there, my vision really is to increase self-awareness through involvement in the functional behavior assessment and then um, give them an active role in the selection and development and implementation of their own behavior intervention plan. I love it. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, because right now for our FBAs our, and FAs, um, we don't typically interview the students. Like I'll, uh, I'll interview students for their preference assessments um, and use uh, forms like the Duncan Rankin scale. Um, to uh, gather data, but um, so do you find them uh, listing the correct antecedent um, whenever they complete the self-monitoring form? You know, that's, so we actually did a study where we looked at that, um, and I think that what we found, so we did, a, so the study was, um, Basically, we conducted student interviews, teacher interviews, and then did a series of direct observations to identify, based on what is being reported, do those antecedent behavior and consequence conditions, um, are, are they represented in the direct observation data? So sort of looking at the validity of it. Um, what we find is that um, we didn't have 100% verification of either the teacher or the student responses, which makes sense because as, as observers, we do a sampling, right? We're not comprehensive in our observations. Um, but, but another thing that came out of that with regard to the student is that our students haven't been taught what an antecedent is. We think about the level of rigor that we are taught to define behavior by in our graduate programs, right? Like we're very objective, we're very clear. There's a whole chapter on it in the Cooper text. Um, and a 16-year-old hasn't been taught to do that. So <laughs> are, they, are they doing that at the same level that we would, well, would we expect them to? I don't think so. I mean, honestly, getting to class at 8.30 for first period is sometimes a struggle, right? So yeah. I don't necessarily expect them to do that from the get-go. Um, but my dissertation actually focused on when we have an explicit instruction approach to teaching kids, um, can we um, can we get them to a point where they can define antecedent conditions like a behavior analyst? And what I found was that they were able, so we used um, a, a curriculum that had student workbooks and then they observed video. And so mm -hmm. based on that video, they would report an antecedent behavior or consequence condition. And then they'd also do a generalization probe where they would verbally report an incident that happened to them that week. Um, and what we found is that the explicit instruction curriculum um, improved their ability to objectively report antecedent behavior and consequence conditions. So kind of novel thought, if you teach them, they learn. 
right? <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> but, but it's not something we've taught them to do. So mm -hmm. while there's a wide number of published studies that involve student interviews in the functional behavior assessment process, or even um, as a, so some of the studies like Kathleen Lane does a lot with um, functional behavior assessment interviews to gather information for the assessment, but then they also do um, the child intervention rating profile. So they'll develop a, a BIP without the student, then they'll show it to the student and they'll have them rate the acceptability of that intervention. So it's sort of like a social validity check. Um, students aren't getting to thrive. And when students are um, being asked to participate in interviews without instruction, I don't know how valuable their contributions are. Um, but I also think when we think about developmental work with students, um, especially adolescents, they want control, they want voice. Um, and so I think we can sort of bump up the role of students and, and make it a little bit more substantial. And I think when we start thinking about student voice and student involvement, we can have a more powerful and contextually appropriate intervention. Yes, I totally agree. Now, one thing, so in here, in the state of Virginia right now for our school system, uh, we are mandated that after, like, like after a discipline incident where they are in either in a restraint or seclusion, we have to debrief with them. And I'm, I question whether or not they truly understand um, <clears throat> what happened, why they engaged in the behavior, and you know that why we had to go into a restraint or seclusion with them, and whether or not the debriefing form is actually bad. I mean, like e even uh, beneficial for our students who are like second and third grade. Uh, who I, are second or third graders. While you were saying that, I'm just thinking of my own tantrums that I've had as an adult, and I'm like, I don't know if I can accurately explain <laughs> why I all of a sudden screamed and threw my phone across the room. Like, I have no idea. I just got really mad. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the great, this is the thing that I don't understand because, of, like, this is state mandated. Like, this is what our state is heading to, um, to have us have the debriefing forms. Like, debrief the whole situation with the student and come up with like a game plan what would help them it makes logical sense that like so that you're not just doing the same thing over and over i know paula you were going to say something yeah. too sorry no you're you're good um so i think i think about it in terms of how do we approach behavior intervention for any kid that we're working with from an aba standpoint right so we have antecedent strategies we have teaching strategies and we have um response strategies right the teachers mm -hmm. prevent and enforce um i think the problem with that th is that that's a response strategy right like yeah. you've engaged in the crisis like the crisis has happened you're probably still ticked as all get out at the people <laughs> who are not like now let's plan right like yes. so so like now your nemesis is coming and being like let's let's problem solve right yeah and it's <laughs> Want to, Megan? I appreciate your your uh, using your cell phone as, as an example. I don't know <laughs> you to throw your phone across the room, but I'm guessing if it was your, if it was um, a colleague of yours, and that colleague said, "Megan, let's talk about this." You'd say, "Screw you!" Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think we hold our kiddos to a different standard because there's yeah. such a different, there's a power differential there. Right? Mm -hmm. I think that is a wonderful idea, and I think that is a wonderful policy that should be secondary 
to antecedent teaching interventions that focus on how do we identify that process. So um, are y'all familiar with the Colvin escalation cycle? It's generally, sometimes it's called Colvin, sometimes it's not, but it is always in your crisis intervention um, work. Are you guys familiar with the escalation cycles? I'm so yeah I'm I'm familiar with escalation cycles like so we're taught to use um uh we've been we've been through mant we've been through um uh, safety care and we've been through handle with care and the one that I agree with the most I think is um um safety care because it's the steps right yeah yeah so you go up the step you can come down the steps is that what you're talking about yeah so it's a similar idea so the colvin escalation cycle talks about it's by jeff colvin i think it originally came out in the 90s and it talks about the different um steps of escalation for a student and what behavior looks like so it starts with completely calm nothing's mm -hmm. going on then you have a trigger, the student starts to accelerate, the mm -hmm. student becomes agitated, the student reaches their peak behavior. Um, then you have de-escalation where, um, depending on how teachers respond, you can jump them back up to that peak, right? Mm -hmm. And then you've got recovery, but you've got this whole, what is that, seven steps um, of student behavior and crisis, right? Mm -hmm. Lee Kern's team, Lee Kern is at Lehigh University, she has done some work with the escalation cycle and she actually took that and mapped that onto a self-reflection sheet as an antecedent teaching procedure. So what she did was she said, okay, um, this is what's typical for students in the agitation cycle. This is what your internalizing students do. This is what your externalizing students do. What does this look like for you? So when I get agitated, um, my speech changes. I start mm -hmm. speaking in very short, sharp sentences, right? So, mm -hmm. well, I don't I get your phone, right? Like, so that, that kind of thing, um, I'm going to be more inclined to interrupt, right? I'm going to be less inclined to listen. Everything just gets faster, right? So if I can identify that that is what my acceleration or agitation looks like, then I'm more inclined to be able to say, okay, I need a break, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I need to right now because I know where this is going. Yeah. Um, in the same way, if we teach teachers to that cycle for their kids, there are specific strategies that map onto each level of that cycle. Um, and so it teaches teachers a more proactive response to things. So I think when I think about that policy in Virginia, I think that is an awesome thing that I suspect either one of you could do really well because you do those antecedent teaching procedures first. Yeah. And, and that post kind of like crisis autopsy, right, becomes yeah. something that leads back to instruction, becomes a, a teaching tool that reinforces a prior conversation. But when we have this as a state mandated um, requirement without, in the absence of teaching, um, it seems to me like that could be an instance, especially if it's the, the person who the student is struggling with. Um, if done poorly, it could be an opportunity to re-escalate a kid, I'd imagine. Yeah, so we have like up to two days to go over, I mean, complete the debriefing from which is good. But at the same time, I know some of my students, they forget what happened if you wait like four hours too. And that's just, I mean, like for me, what I do is I just, I just 
watch my students and how they react. And I just, you know, test waters with them, so to speak, just to see where they're at. Um, and then if they're ready to, I mean, if they're at baseline, then I'll, inter I mean, I'll talk a little bit about the situation earlier and just debrief with them and how, you know, yes, you had that incident, but it doesn't mean that you had a horrible day either. It's just one time during the day. I think that's another thing too, is our parent, I mean, I love our parents, but sometimes I feel like they also need some parent training with our, our learners that, you know, you know, if they have one incident at school, it's okay. What's not okay to, is continue to, to do it. And they have to work with our kids to let them know it's one time you had a bad, bad time. I mean, a bad incident and that happens. Doesn't mean that your whole day has to be ruined or yeah. But I think teachers and behavior analysts have an opportunity to set a tone for that. Um, because what I tell my students all the time is that the vast majority of calls that parents get are um, punishment, mm -hmm. related, yeah. right? Um, and so if we are only communicating bad things to parents, we shouldn't be surprised that they take a zoom and doom approach. Right? Mm -hmm. We've got to share our wins with parents as much as we share our uh, growth opportunities. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes I totally agree so that's like so I make sure that I call my parents when they're having a great day I make sure I call them and I'll ask the students like hey do you want me to call your 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 parents today because you are having a great day you're completing work you're keeping your hands and feet to yourself I want to make a call is that okay and they'll shake their head some of them some of my students actually don't want that phone call be made Mm -hmm. so, so I'll just make sure that I make an annotation on their um, day note to go home just to discuss about their day, just so the parents at least have some information. But I think you bring up a really important point. Just out of curiosity, what um, population of students do you work with? I work with students who have uh, EBD, OHI. Um, I have one student who have, who's on the spectrum in my classroom. But majority of our population is EBD. What's the age again, Joe? Uh, so my center is K through five. Oh, you got the little guys. Yeah. So it's the my center is um, all the students have a disability, and they present um, severe um, emotional and behavioral difficulties in school, and they have a lot of challenging behaviors. A lot of it is, I mean they all come to us for aggression. So, uh, yeah, um, that's the type of population we work with. And uh, we have one, two, four classrooms right now in our center, um, K through five. I think you bring up a really interesting point when you talk about some of your kids are not motivated by parent attention mm -hmm. or home home. Um, and I think that kind of ties back to the idea of function, right? Yeah. Um, so when we look at functional assessment, we obviously have our four functions of behavior. But I think when you dive deeper into something like attention as a function, mm -hmm. um, there's nuances of what type of attention is reinforcing. And you see that a lot with your your um, students with behavioral issues um, who are more typically developing because there are different, very different responses to very different, you know, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? 
Um, yeah. So I've known folks who have come in going, oh my gosh, buddy, that's awesome. High five, right? Something that would be very yeah. appropriate for different disabilities yeah. that special analysts may serve. Um, and our students are like, what is wrong with you? Like, mm -hmm. what are you saying? right? Like way too the top. Whereas like, with my high schoolers, I generally take a more sarcastic tone, um, very affectionate, very positive, never coercive, but sarcastic, right? And the kids love it, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, it really does depend. I think sometimes, and, and I, but that's not just typically developing kids with behaviors, that's all of us, right? Mm -hmm. I have a colleague who I, co I collaborate with and we were in a mentorship group meeting a few weeks ago and, um, Jennifer is just absolutely fabulous. She's taught me a new methodology for research. And I'm like, shout out to her. She's amazing, right? But I also knew that if I called her out in front of the group, she'd be mortified. And so um, I, I said, you know, there's a group member who's been really instrumental in shaping my, my research development. And so I want to thank her. And then I texted her and I said, obviously, this is you, but I knew you'd be embarrassed. So, um, <laughs> so right? Like reinforcement is individualized. And just because yeah. the intention doesn't mean what we inherently assume it to mean. And I think mm -hmm. when you're working with typically developing kids, there's gotta be a differentiation based on our knowledge of that kid, which is based on the relationship. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And relationship is so key with our population too. I mean, well, any, any learner, but I mean, especially I see in my, in my uh, population I work with, like you have to have a good rapport and relationship with your learners in order to gain any momentum, especially educationally with them. But I think once you do have that trust, mm -hmm. um, a lot of times that trust is, is, once you have it, it can often be hard to lose. Yeah. Um, not, but but um, you, can, you can go a long way with relationships. Yes, I totally agree. And that's where like, I, like if I know if uh, one of my, one of my teacher aides have a difficult time with a student that day. I tell her like next tomorrow, I want you to just pair with her, do something fun with them, build that relationship back up. Um, because if we don't have that, if she can't trust you, if she can't work with you or doesn't want to, then we're going to lose her the rest of the year. Absolutely. So, yeah, I know. Um, so what resources do you have? um working with this population yeah so um i have a couple of texts that i love to use so i think it depends on um the role that you're in um mm -hmm. I, I think as a I'm, I'm assuming that this question is geared more towards school-based behavior analysts um which is a really tough uh it's a tough job right? <laughs> hired on to public schools. And I think I, I've, I'll share my resources, but we gotta acknowledge that first. Um, a lot of times school districts don't understand best practice and they can't mm -hmm. find best practice. And so um, you're hired on, whether the district will admit it or not, many times to um, have a large caseload to avoid due process hearing. Mm -hmm. right? Yes. So many yeah. times you are asked um, to serve in ways where you're really overextended and your job is typically an OBM job where you're not working directly with students you're doing more centric mm -hmm. right yes yeah it's not bad but 
the transferable skills from working in an early intervention autism clinic to working with teachers who don't like you. <laughs> it's a really big jump, right? Yes. Um, and working with, you know, having 50 kids on your caseload, mm -hmm. that's a really big jump. Um, so when I look at school-based um, provision of behavior analysis services, um, I look at sort of what are the resources that will help um, disseminate the science in teacher-friendly ways. Um, so there's a number of texts that I really like, and it just depends on the way that you're being asked to serve in a school. Um, when I'm looking to get buy-in for things like behavior interventions um, for a more specific tailored intervention, so we're doing a behavior contract, um, the best text that I like is uh, Managing Challenging Behavior in the Schools by um, Lane Menzies Brune in, oh gosh, I can't say this name, um, Nor Norbury, I think. Um, and I can send you the, the references for these texts, but that's a great book that has um, starts with an overview of general um, classroom setup strategies, classroom setups, and then low intensity strategies you can use while teaching. And then it talks through things like behavior contracts, self-management. Um, I think they talk about token economies there, um, but some, some of those more intensive interventions that you can use. Um, mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the things that I think we completely miss is that most of the time improving our teaching and improving the way that teachers interact in a class-wide setting can improve behavior management for one student too, right? So if I increase opportunities to respond school-wide, uh, or I'm sorry, class-wide, um, my kid might get on board because he doesn't have time to get off board. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the best text that I have for that is um, supporting behavior for school success. Um, which is uh, Lane Menzies, um, Robin Parks Innes, and then uh, Wendy Oaks. And that text is really good because it goes through specific, what they call low intensity strategies, things like opportunities to respond, um, active student responding, um, active supervision, behavior specific praise, these really basic things that many times come naturally to strong teachers, but, but teachers who are strong generally are better classroom managers, right? Yeah. Um, so dealing with, with teachers who are struggling a bit more, um, this is a great text and it has fidelity checklists on each page, um, so, or on each chapter and strategy. So a um, lot of great resources there, um, very teacher-friendly book, very coaching-friendly book. Um, nice. If you're doing um, school-wide intervention, so you're trying to develop a PBIS system, they yeah. also have a text, um, it's Lane Kohlberg and Menzies, and I, I promise she's not paying me to promote her. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it talks about the system of getting staff buy-in for school-wide interventions and programs, um, which can be really mm -hmm. beneficial. And then my favorite FBA book, and honestly, this is more for price and reproducibles than anything else, is um, Crone, Hawker, and Horner, and it's Building Positive Behavior Support Systems in Schools. It is functionally equivalent to the O'Neill book. So many of us had the green book in, mm -hmm. in our training. Did you guys have the green book? No. No? no? Okay. This one was big for us at, at University of South Florida. So we had the O'Neill book. Many people have it. It's a... Um, a pretty thin text on doing functional behavior assessments. Um, it's pretty expensive though, 
Um, the, um, this one, which is the, um, the Crone, Hawken, and Horner book, um, is functionally the same thing. It walks you through the theory of functional behavior assessments, the whole process, why we do what we do, and it has a bunch of like student and teacher interviews, data collection forms, even referrals. If you think there needs to be an FBA, it has a referral form. Um, okay. So a bunch of usables. Um, and it is like a third of the price. I think this book is like 35 bucks. So it's, it's much more affordable and there are um, electronic reproducibles so you can print them out and then just have them as part of your systems. That's fantastic. I mean, so I love all the resources. I know I'm definitely going to, you know, look into them because just, you know, what, um, just being a teacher in an EBD classroom. Um, so I got a question with, um, as far as, you know, working with students on interventions in the classroom when, um, when as an EBD teacher, you're probably gonna have a classroom full of anywhere from like five to nine students with maybe another teacher aide, if you're lucky. Um, so how, so what, um, what tips or, um, what yeah what tips do you have for those teachers that are struggling to uh be to implement these interventions with fidelity um sure so uh are you talking about a specific intervention or just to to work with these kids broadly yeah i mean guys just work with these kids uh broadly because i as a you mean class i mean teacher i know that um when you have nine students in, in a classroom and it's and you already have like you already have two other staff members in your classroom, but they might be working individually with the student, but you still have this whole classroom um, full of students who are also on different uh, different levels. Right. Um, it's a very challenging scenario for those teachers. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think the overarching piece of advice I'd say is it is okay with the right leadership, but philosophically, it is always okay to step, take a step back because it may result in you being able to take three steps forward, you know? Yeah. Um, what I mean by that is um, I think our kids, kids with EBD in particular, have a remarkable way of interrupting instruction. They come <laughs> to because they interrupt instruction. And, and I'd pull my kids a lot of times and I'd say, hey, check you out, you know, you're really powerful. And they'd look at me with side eye and they go, what do you mean? Um, and I'd say, well, you know, there's, there's 10 people in this room and you managed to engage in a way that's, that controlled all 10 people at once. That's power, right? That's really yeah, powerful. yeah. And is this how you want to use your power? You know, like, is this the choice you want to make? Because I know you can control, you, you have leadership skills. You absolutely have leadership skills. Is this where you want to lead? Or can we work together in a way that's a little bit more productive um, to get us there? So, so that's how I talk to my kids about it. I think one of the most underutilized interventions and simplest interventions that we have in our, in our is um, choice, right? Mm -hmm. Choice, and I think in um, in my early intervention work, choices: do you want the red pen or the blue pen? Which is a really valuable yes. thing. The choice can also be, 
hey, do you need five minutes to cool off or do you want to get started now? Mm -hmm. I'm seeing that you're coming in and you're feeling a little bit snarky right now. And I hear you and I see that <laughs> for that. However, um, we're going to work, right? So that is our ultimate mm -hmm. work. Are we starting now or are we starting in five? Your call. Yeah. You know, and it turns that autonomy back over to the student so they get to call some shots. A lot of yeah. times our kids don't have that opportunity to call some shots. So I think that's valuable. Um, I also think that there are, gosh, depending on the specific um, task at hand, we need to think really creatively about how to approach the task based on function. So um, one of the things that we see a lot of times is um, teachers really struggle with escape maintained behavior related to academic work, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's understandable because as a teacher, you're held accountable for student progress. So mm -hmm. you are doing your job by making them do their work. They think you're the enemy because you're making them do work. But I think we're we are trained to be smarter, right? We're trained to be able to get ahead of them. And so one of the things that I've done in the past is I said, okay, guys, we've got 15 problems. Um, let's, let's make this easier. You've got 20 problems for homework. You've got 20 problems in class, but I'll make you a deal. Every class problem you get done, I'll take one off your homework, right? Mm -hmm. So you embed a negative reinforcement contingency. You never really cared about them having homework in the first place. They just had yeah. 20 problems. <laughs> Yeah. But um, we we set it up so the perception is they get to have a have a privilege. They get to get out of this um, based on the work. You're happy because you never cared about them doing forty problems in the first place. But yeah. We just we don't necessarily think about providing negative reinforcement in that manner. Yeah. Yeah. I have never in my eleven years. Uh, working with this population, I never thought about taking away problems on their homework. I've done it in other ways, um, but I have never, I mean, I have never thought about taking away um, problems on their homework because for me, like homework is, I just want you to go home, spend time with your family, and read a book. That's, 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 that's my view on homework. Like, I want you to have a break, an actual break, because a lot of our students, and learners, they go home and they're either going to act after after school activities, they're going to daycare, and they don't get home till like six o'clock. And then you're throw homework in the mix. That just creates a bad night for that for their parents too. But it becomes much higher stakes if you're in tenth grade than if you're in second, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Megan, do you have any questions? No, I love listening to the discussion. It's nice to listen and not be the one talking the whole time. Um, Paula, I got most of the resources that you were saying. I was just like searching and pulling them up. But if you have a list that you want to send over, that would be helpful too, so I can double check. I also um, found a couple of things on the escalation cycle too that I'll share. Have you, um, this is an older book. It's from 2005, but Individualized Support for Students with Problem Behaviors. Um, by Bambara and Kern. Have you seen that one at all? I'm not familiar with it. Okay. It's older, but it's, there's like a free, you can like look at it for free online. So I figured I'd share that. It, I looked at the contents and stuff and it looks pretty good. And it, it's one at Kern obviously is um, one of the people that you were referencing. So, um, 
so Kern actually trained, um, I don't know if she trained, but she, she collaborated very closely with Glenn Dunlap. Mm-hmm. And they were the whole team out of University of South Florida. It's phenomenal. And yeah. her, while she's done everything, she really moved into adolescence with Edie. Um, so I don't know that text, but if we wrote it, then I'm sure it was fabulous. I was looking the chapter, <laughs> the chapters are great. There's, um, some stuff from Dunlap, there's Kern, there's even like the Kegels. So it's got a good, um, uh, Sagai, um, Horner. So like <laughs> pretty much all of the people in this area that you would want to read stuff on have written a chapter in this book. So, so. um, Lynn Kern Kegel is Lee's twin. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. I did. I never put the two together. That's cool. Yeah. Really neat. So I'll, I'll include those in the show notes as well. Um, and then we talked about just kind of for the listeners to know, hopefully at some point in 2020, we will um, have you on for a webinar too. And you can share a little bit more um, with like visuals and whatnot about the work that you're doing. And that'll be really exciting as well. That would be great. Wonderful. Well, I think we've pretty much covered what we plan to talk about today, right? Any closing thoughts, Paula? Um, I think the, the greatest piece of advice I could say to anyone working with this population is this population is really fun, but really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it because you're never done learning. It never gets stagnant. It's you, you're always going to get a kid who throws something new at you. Um, I think the best thing you can do if you work with and love on these kiddos is find a group of colleagues who work with and love on these kiddos too. Um, because what I can bring to Joe or what Joe can bring to me, I might, Joe might've had a kid who's dealing with the same issue that I am. Um, and I'm frustrated and I'm not feeling successful and I'm not contacting reinforcement through, you know, the process of trying to develop interventions and Joe has better ideas than I do. Right. So this population, and I guess it's any population, but um, it's too hard to do alone. So develop a group mm-hmm. of colleagues and have a network of support would be my greatest piece of advice. Great advice. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder, and I think it's good to hear too, especially someone at the doctoral level to say that because sometimes people feel like if they can't do it on their own, then they're not good enough. And there's like the imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff of like, mm-hmm. I should be able to do this. And um, like you said, it's probably every population we work with, you know, but especially when you have ones that are um, ch- challenging your, like sometimes, especially in early intervention, you can just go every day and just do the same things over and over. You don't even have to think about it. But when you get into more challenging populations, you're constantly using your brain to figure stuff out and that gets exhausting. So, And, and I'm going to take it a step further and um, say something that we probably shouldn't say, but I'm going to say it. Um, we have kids and clients we don't like as people, right? Like, like there are some kids or clients or populations that are just harder for us, right? So like I do really well with kids with learning disabilities or behavior issues. You can cuss me out. You can throw a chair at me. Mm-hmm. Um, I struggle with gifted kids. I really struggle with gifted kids because this idea that you are smarter than the rest of us and you know it and you're just not applying yourself um that's just not something that motivates me mm-hmm. you know and and that is a personal limitation of mine and something that you know I need to separate my my perspective and opinion on that from my professionalism 
But I also know that if I am working within the context of a classroom and I have a kid who is just harder for me for whatever reason, uh, I need to be extra mindful of that to make sure that that bias doesn't come into my interactions or my treatment of that child. Um, I've worked with um, teachers who are out of the closet and they have students coming in saying very homophobic statements, right? And that's really challenging. So, so you know, that's bias in the other direction. Um, but we have to be mindful of those triggers for us and have those that community of accountability to make sure that we're not allowing that to um, compromise the integrity of our teaching or service to those kids. Yeah, some of our kids will say anything they, I mean, anything and everything that they can about you. Absolutely. And you just have to take it with a grain of salt and not even, you know, just tell yourself, I mean, you just use some self-talk and tell yourself like, you know, yes, they're saying this stuff. It's just words. Right. But that's, but that's where the community comes in too, right? Because if yeah. I go, oh, you know, I was called a B today and you say, oh, really? Well, I can one-up you there. I, this is what I was called, right? Well, here's yeah. the qualifiers that my B status came in with, right? And that's, I mean, but that's the fun because we can um, share and normalize and create healthy places mm. for processing. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for participating. And as our first podcast interviewee, we're really excited that we were able to make this work. I know everyone has busy schedules. So yes, thanks for joining thank us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.